Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And you know what I want to do this week is to address the four questions. And no, despite the fact that we're in the high holidays, I don't mean those manishtana four questions. I mean four questions that I often get in the proverbial mail from people who are asking about things having to do with language and linguistics. There are these four things that come again and again and again. And yes, I got one of them last week, which got me thinking about this, where the person is writing expecting a certain answer, which is fine. And I can't help thinking that, one, that answer happens not to be available. And two, the actual answer is in a way more interesting than what the person was expecting. It's these four things that come up again and again. Since, you know, we're on the topic of the high holidays, let's think about something that goes on in Hebrew. I get a question that's related to this a lot. Hebrew, which is a good Semitic language, so I might as well be talking about Arabic or Aramaic, but let's make it Hebrew. Hebrew has really cool verbs, and the way they work is that you've got three consonants, and the way that you make the verb do its dance is that you have the vowels ooching and moving around in between the consonants, and also around them, dancing around them like Cinderella and the prince dancing around a pillar. It's very interesting. So, for example, writes, as in he, she, or it writes. Kotev. No, in itself, who cares? But wrote is katav. So it's the same kutav, but you just change the vowels in between. A letter, i.e. something you write, is a michtav. So it's that same kutav. Spelling is ktiv. So ktiv. And you just have the E in there. You can imagine I could go on and on. That's the way those verbs work. Now, this does lead to a question. But first, you have to get a sense of how this works in a living way. All of that that I just told you is like I'm teaching a linguistics class. That won't do here. Let's listen to some Hebrew. So, for example, this is from, you'll never guess what I'm going to use. It's going to be from a Broadway musical. This one is My Fair Lady. Now, let's listen to just the beginning of the grand old song, You Did It. Tonight, old man, you did it, you did it, you did it. You said that you would do it, and indeed you did. I thought that you would rue it, I doubted you'd do it. But now I must admit it, that succeed you did. 
Now, armed with that, even if you don't know any Hebrew, listen to one of the Israeli recordings. Yes, there are more than one. One of the Israeli recordings of My Fair Lady. This is You Did It, and here we go. Now, even if you don't know the language, I think it's fairly obvious what nitzachta means here. You know, nitzachta, nitzachta, that is the you did it, and so you succeeded. Okay, so nitzachta in itself, who cares? Okay, but a victory is a nitzachon. And so, that same thing that's in there, or somebody who has an impact is a lamnat. And so, but different stuff. Eternal is not nitzachta, it's netzach. And so, that's the way these verbs work. That's how the language is actually used. One more, because, well, frankly, I just, I love Hebrew for various reasons. And so, listen to I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, the way it comes out in Hebrew, real quick. And so, ragal, to say it with a stupid American accent, that is to get accustomed to regularize, so to speak. Now, then elsewhere in the same musical, listen to how I'm an ordinary man comes out. So, in the original version, it's, well, Pickering, I'm an ordinary man. Here in Hebrew, it's this. So, ani adam ragil, ragil. So, somebody hit ragalti to somebody's face, but then if somebody's an ordinary man, a regular man, then they are ragil, ragal, ragil. That's the way these verbs work. You know something? They never asked me to play Higgins. You know, production after production goes by and it's always some actual actor. Why don't they ask me? I am that person. Now I'm that person's age, but I'm never going to get to play him. I have to just pretend. That is the way verbs work in the Semitic languages, also in Ethiopia, for the record. Now, as it happens, there's really only one other place in the world where you have those tri-consonantal roots. And it happens to be in a couple of languages in California, of all places, spoken by Native Americans. So in one of them called Miwok, you say chiwel, and that means to cry, but chiwel means tears. It's the same sort of thing. Now, this is the letter that I get. I can always see it coming. It's Professor McWhorton, I was wondering whether... And it comes from people who have an idea that there are lost tribes of Israel. Is it possible that these Native Americans are descended from these Jews who moved to North America? So it's a jolly idea. Of course, we might consider that there are DNA traces of this population movement among these Native Americans. But it's more interesting with these triconsonantal roots to know how something like that happens at all. If it possibly isn't that there were some Jewish people who took on the life 
of indigenous people in Northern California, including their appearance. If it isn't that, why is it that in some very few places in the world, verbs work like that instead of it being a matter of walk, walked, etc.? How would that even start? And, you know, it's all about things like the passport in the drawer. Passport, for example, in my drawer. I went to Ireland a couple of weeks ago. Never mind why. And it involved finding my passport. And as always, my passport was in a drawer up in the den closet that is full of things like pencils and staplers and protractors and things and also the passport. And it occurred to me while I was getting the passport, why am I reaching up into this plastic box full of pens and erasers and things to get my passport. Why do I keep it here? And it's really just because of conditions in the past that have drifted into the present and there's no reason really to change it. And so it's all I know. I used to keep my passport in my desk drawer, which happened to have other things like that in it. For random reasons, when we moved the things in that one drawer, when we got rid of the desk, were put into a box that included the passport. And so now in my house, my passport is associated with the Fred Flintstone eraser and the staple remover for no reason at all. And I wouldn't have it any other way. That is part of the language of my household. You see where I'm going. Well, these triconsonantal roots are the same thing. This is how it happens. It's a cool process. So let's say that it happens in English. We've got something like the verb for to fall. We all know what falling is. Now, let's say that the way that you said fallen, having fallen, was to put sh before it and um after it. That's the way it happened in an early stage of Semitic. But let's pretend that all of this happened in English. So you fall. And then to say that you are fallen, then you'll say shafalem. Let's say that's how it worked. And so a person who is no longer where they were, Harvey Weinstein is shafalem, for example. Now, you're used to shafalem, and then imagine that you developed a new verb form, and you want to say, I am fallen, I have become fallen. Let's not have it be Hester Prynne or something, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. And let's say that you used ah for I, and so you would say, ah shafal. So, we have fall, we have fallen is shafalem, and then if you want to say, I am fallen, you say, ah shafal. That's one stage. What happens after that is that sounds, as we've discussed, are always changing. So after a while, shafalem, if the accent starts shifting, shafalem is going to become shaflem. That's just the sort of thing that you almost know is going to happen. Shafalem, and then 500 years later, people are saying shaflem. Then meanwhile, with ashafal, well, you're going to lose that sh in the middle, probably, because people are going to say it all the time. We're always becoming fallen. And so instead of ashafal, ashfal. So it gets to a point where nobody remembers when it was fall, shafalum, ashafal. Now all anybody knows is that it's fall, shaflum, and ashfal. Well, that means that in one of them, you've got a vowel in between the sh and the f, shaflum. But then in the other one, you've got a vowel in between the f and the l, but not between the sh and the f. And so, ash, fal. If all anybody knows, if somebody is born into a world where all there is is shaflam and ash, fal, then they get a sense that the way to say fall is to say something like sh, 
and mess with all of the vowels in between. Next thing you know, you have these triconsonantal roots. That's the way it happens. It's through one step after another. Next thing you know, you're reaching up into a drawer in the den to get a passport and finding that perfectly logical. That's how the roots happen. So probably not that some Jewish people moved to California and became Native Americans. It's really that miraculous process that happens now and then. I owe that explanation to Guy Deutscher in his book, The Unfolding of Language. I adapted it considerably, but that is from him. And so whenever I've gotten this four times, whenever I get that letter about the Miwoks and the Yokuts and whether or not they are lost Jews, I always think it's actually really cool how languages develop that pattern anyway. So now I've shared that with you. Now let's talk about baby mama. Here we go with Outcast. <laughs> this is the famous beginning. Baby daddy, baby mama. Here we go. Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, mamas. Mamas, mamas. <laughs> baby mamas, mamas. Yeah, go like this. Now, you can go online and you're going to hear that the reason that so many black people say baby mama is because they're imitating people from Jamaica. So, yes, there are West Indians in and around many black communities, apparently, with just this one expression and a rather loaded and particular expression. All of a sudden, black America has gone calypso. And, of course, the music cue now is going to be the one that I suspect a lot of you wish I had played a few weeks ago. This is Marley. So I can say that I played him once. Here is Jammer. Oh, I played it. <laughs> and the point being, baby mama. Is it really that people are running around imitating Jamaicans? God bless Jamaicans. But why that one expression? And are Jamaicans particularly known for the whole phenomenon of baby mama, baby daddy? I don't think so. So why would it be that? Actually, the real answer is that baby mama is grammar. Black English has grammar of its own. And one of the things about black English that's interesting is that unlike in standard English, you can let that possessive S go. And as I always stress, it's not that black English is all about what you can leave out. There are all sorts of things that you put in that standard English doesn't have, like that up that we talked about, you know, up in here. But this is a case where black English is the subtractive one. And you can tell, for example, because in the clip, you get it the standard way the first time, and then the black English way the second time. Baby's mama, then baby mama. Listen again. Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, 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 <laughs> baby mamas, mamas. But the point is, when you hear a curious expression like that, there are times when it really is just a one-off expression. But just as often, what you want to do is figure out whether it's actually part of something systematic. That is one of the things that linguists do. You're always asked at parties. I was asked at one last night, what does a linguist do? Well, one of the things that we do is we're trying to find pattern in what looks like the chaos of language. So in black English, it's that you can leave off the possessive S in general. This 
is my favorite example. He left us too soon. Robin Harris, the comedian. I laugh at the thought of him. Those of you who were following black stand up comedy a good long time ago now will remember him. And he didn't make it out of the 90s. And it's a shame. But one of his best routines was the Bebe's Kids routine, where he talks about having to take care of a brood of, of miscreants, basically. Now, listen to the way he said Bebe's Kids. She told me, she, told me, she said, if you want to get acquainted with me and my son, you have to take us to Disneyland. Hey, that a bitch. I went to pick up the next day, he should got four more kids. I said, uh, who kids are them? She said, those are baby kids. He said, where the fuck is baby? Baby went downtown. So why didn't she take her kids with her? Oh, don't worry about it. Baby left $10 to help get him in Disneyland. Ain't that a bitch. It was $200 trying to get them fuckers in Disneyland. And you know how kids act when they never been nowhere. You know how they act. We go into small, small world. They jump out the boat. I can hold a dick to my small world. Shit. Small world. We baby kids. We don't die. We multiply. Them Bebe kids. That's how he says it. Yes, my bad imitation. Not Bebe's, Bebe kids. And that doesn't mean that it's some Hanna-Barbera Saturday morning cartoon, the Bebe kids or something like that. It's that he spontaneously is letting the possessive S go because that is part of the grammar of black English. And you know something? It's not only black English. It's also Brit English. If you go to the Yorkshire region, And probably go a little bit back in time if you have the wherewithal to do it. But even if you don't have the money for that, go somewhere, drink a lot with people who've never left the region, sit and wait for a long time, be biased towards the old, and you will hear people saying things like my sister husband. Now, those are the kinds of people often that African slaves would have worked alongside here in the United States. There are interesting documents of prisoners in London in the 15 and 1600s, where people actually took down exactly what they were saying. And they say things such as Goldwell wife instead of Goldwell's wife, or Barlow own brother instead of Barlow's own brother. So it's not just black people, it's people who are not black in the least. And a lot of these people, these prisoners, were exactly the ones who were due for transportation to plantations in Virginia, etc. So baby mama is that. It is Black English grammar. It's not Jamaican Creole. Jamaican Creole can do the same thing, but Black English would be that way even if no Jamaicans had ever happened to come here at all, especially because Black English was formed alongside white people who sometimes would have had that same construction as well. My wonderful producer and technician June Thomas has told me, June is from England, that her father used to say only for animals, not its leg, but it leg. So that's a living or maybe recently living example of this construction. So baby mama is that. And June is definitely not from Jamaica. So here's another one. For reasons that I'm not going to get into, I was rereading 
a biography the other day of the well-known book critic Edmund Wilson. Boy, there are a few things duller than reading about the life of a book critic. All he did was read a lot of books, drink a lot, and annoy his wives. And, you know, reading book criticism later when you really could be reading the book doesn't work. But I needed to go through this. And there was one thing that he said that always sticks with me, actually better than anything that he wrote about books. He he went to Russia and he was trying to learn Russian. And he said, well, you know, Russian doesn't have a set of endings to mark the future. It doesn't have a future tense. And I guess that's why they're always late. Okay. And you think to yourself, well, I guess maybe, but there's a theme there. And of course, you know, he wasn't a linguist. He was doing what he did very well. And this was just a passing comment. There was another one that he made about his penis, but that one was the one that really stuck in my mind. And you hear all sorts of things about languages that don't have the future and what it says about the people. There was a newspaper article once about these interesting people way down at the tip of Chile. Their language doesn't have a future tense either. And the writer, he's very good, but the writer for some reason said that that must have something to do with the fact that they spend a lot of time in canoes. They're traveling and they don't have time to, I, I don't know. But anyway, then there is um, an economist at Yale, Keith Chen. And he has a deliciously eccentric idea that if your language doesn't have future marking, then it means that you're more likely to save money because not having future marking means that you think about the future more. It He has a TED Talk. Just watch him say it. But that's his idea. First of all, I'm intensely skeptical about all of these connections. But more to the point, nobody ever thinks about the fact that English doesn't really have future marking either. We think that will marks the future. So I walk, I walked, I will walk. That's like taking a giant squid and putting it on the beach and thinking that that is the life of the animal rather than having seen it underwater. It's not like that. Will doesn't mark the future. So for example, that is the doctor. Then somebody says, oh, that will be the doctor because they hear footsteps coming. Oh, that will be the doctor. Now, that doesn't mean that in the future it will be the doctor, but that it isn't the doctor now. It means hypothetically it seems that that is the doctor. My guess is that that's the doctor. The will marks the hypothetical. Or try this. So just watch. Tomorrow I'll wear Argyle socks and just wait and see how many people tell me that I'm dapper. When you say something like that, you probably are saying that you might wear them. It's If I wear Argyle socks, then people will think that I'm dapper. It's hypothetical, not the future. And that's why, for example, tomorrow I will turn 30 years old. That's not a sentence. I'm sure that people are being taught all over the world that that's English, but you would never say that. Tomorrow I will turn 30. You sound either foreign or like some robot. Tomorrow I will turn 30. No, tomorrow I turn 30. We leave the future to context. Tomorrow I will turn 30. It almost sounds like you're determined to do it. Tomorrow I'm turning 30. That's better. That's because will is not really a future marker in any sense that the Martian linguist would analyze. We just like to think of it that way because of the inheritance of people who shoehorned our sense of what English is into the mold of Latin, which does have future marking, 200 and 300 years ago. 
And yet, last time I checked, Americans, for example, are not very good savers. We are a fairly punctual people, and we are almost never in canoes. So we have to watch out for these connections that we make between what a language is like and what people are like. I've got those Broadway vampires lashed to the mast. I've got no future, but oh, what a past. Rose of Washington Square. So you get it? Hasn't got a future, but oh, what a past. That's because I was talking about languages with, with no future. That movie is highly recommended. It's the very white 10th Avenue Irish Alice Faye playing rather bizarrely unsemitic Fanny Bryce, but you've got Al Jolson at his best, which is an interesting concept in very good sound. You haven't lived until you've heard him sing Toot, Toot, Tootsie Goodbye. Also, if you're really into Alice Faye, and of course you are, try to dig up a number where she and John Payne dance around a kitchen singing about scraping the toast. It's a lot of fun. One more. I get this one all the time. If I had a nickel for every time I got this one, I could buy a DVD of Rose of Washington Square again. And that is this business of so. People are always writing to me, what I want to know is, how come lately people are always putting so before everything they say? How come it's always so? I went to the store. So I was thinking I was going to go buy some toilet tissue. What's all this so? Why so? Okay. And it's always that it just started. And, you know, it didn't just start. And so, yes, people do preface things with so all the time. I'm sure I do it. I probably just did it. But, you know, we can't hear people speaking casually as far back in the past very often as much as we'd like. But when we do, it can be surprising how much like us people who are now very dead sounded. Here is a random example. It's 1929. And this is a recording of a comedian. His name is Jack Osterman, and he sings a very bad song. But then in the middle of his routine, he just yammers and does 1929's version of stand-up comedy. So here's somebody who, of course, he's said all these things before, but he's not reading from a script. You can see this short. He's just talking in 1929. And first of all, listen to how his speech is as baggy and rattly as anybody else's is today, despite that it's 1929. And he's, of course, wearing evening clothes because that's the custom. Notice that he does one of these sows. I said, make up your mind. Where do you want to go? He said, well, I would like to. I'd like to go to the Ritz. I've heard a lot about the Ritz. So I said, all right, we go to the Ritz. So we walked in the Ritz and we sat down and the waiter came over. I said, what do you want? What do you want? And she said, I want a sirloin steak. Not a kidding right away. Mike, if you could play it again, because he's talking so fast and he's not expecting somebody 88 years later to be listening to whether or not he said so. So listen to him again. He said, well, I would like to. I'd like to go to the Ritz. I've heard a lot about the Ritz. So I said, all right, we go to the Ritz. So we walked in the Ritz and we sat down and the waiter came over. So you know that he was sewing all over Manhattan, eating his pastrami and smoking his cigarettes. And he was just an ordinary, ordinary person. Now, you can go further back. For example, Dawn Powell. I highly recommend her. She's been considered the female Fitzgerald. There was a big vogue for her about 20 years ago when Tim Page rediscovered her, and then everybody forgot about her again. But she's a lot of fun. One of her novels from 1940, Angels on Toast, 
there's somebody who says so in the, just the way that we're told today only happened sometime last week. So your marriage turned out all right then, Francie said slowly. I read about it in the papers. She was a somebody, I guess. Lots of so in Powell. I'm going to go further back. Sister Carrie, one of my very favorite novels of this period. The movie is good, too, but the novel is astonishing. Just grinds this poor man into the dust. For some reason, I truly get off on novels where somebody gets ground into the dust. But in any case, one of Carrie's early suitors, Drouet, says, So you lost your place because you got sick, eh? You can tell that's how Drouet talked. And so, so you lost your place because you got sick. Huh? You know I could go further back, but it would get monotonous. But let me show you how really far back it goes. Beowulf. There's one to curl up with every now and then, if you must. And it opens with what? We gardena. I have to have the old English voice. We gardena in gerdagum so what that means is in days of yore we heard of the glory of the spear carrying danes tribal kings and how they forged honor except i left out the what which we think of as meaning what so in days of yore we heard of the glory of the spear carrying danes tribal kings and how they forged honor now to have it be what in days of yore we heard of the glory that doesn't translate well and so in grand old translations it's low with an exclamation point low in days of yore we heard of the glory as if the idea was that you're calling your audience in to listen low as if people back then to call the audience in to listen yelled what what that that's not what it is. People who have really analyzed what what means in that usage in Old English have found that what meant what we now use as so. It was so. It was so in days of yore we heard of the glory because this is something that they would have heard before because this, for better or for worse, was their folklore. This was their entertainment. They didn't have the wire and deuce and so they had to make do with Beowulf. It's so even as far back as Old English. It's like, so, in days of yore, we heard of the glory of the spear-carrying Danes. That's what this was. So the soul goes way back. What's fun is rather than thinking of it as something that slovenly, notice I said it right that time, slovenly people started doing three weeks ago, you can actually find equivalents of that so in, frankly, any language at all. My four questions answered the way I've always wanted to answer them. And I've got a little extra time. And so let's go into the letterbox, the things that one finds. Thank you, person on Twitter, for giving me this. Listen to Susan Stamberg. Remember her? Those of us of a certain age. Of course, I'm not of a certain age. Those of you of a certain age. Remember Susan Stamberg on NPR? I remember it well. My family had a Chevy Caprice. It was all soft, and you'd sit in the back seat and listen to NPR. Dun, 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 dun. I'm Susan Stamberg. There was a new movie out. Listen to how she pronounces it. 
in the summer of 1977. A new film opens this week in some 60 or 65 theaters across the country. It's a 20th Century Fox production by George Lucas, and the name of it is Star Wars. NPR film critic Tom Shales is here to talk to us about it. I don't know a thing about this. Backshift collection. I think that's such fun. I almost remember there was a guy who came to a backyard party I had that summer and said there's this new movie called Star Wars. Then for some reason at that same party, somebody's weird uncle brought a pistol and he took me and that same boy into the very back of the backyard and showed us how to shoot it into the dirt. That's the one time I've ever held a gun. There was a bizarre power to it. We shot bullets into the dirt and talked about Star Wars. Now, you may have wondered at times what the sitcom was that filmed next door to I Love Lucy. Well, at last, I will tell you what it was. It was called December Bride, made by the same people, same feel, similar sounding theme song, almost as good as I Love Lucy's theme song. Now, of course, there are some people who have seen a little too much of December Bride because they're curious about garbage from the past, and I would have to say that I'm one of them. Listen to Joe Besser, who guest stars as what I guess used to be called a bum or a hobo on one episode. Joe Besser will be familiar to some of you as Stinky on the Abbott and Costello show or as one of the later versions of Curly in The Three Stooges. Listen here to his plans for learning a new dance. You're going to buy me another outfit just like this. <laughs> I'm going to take mambo lessons. <laughs> hey, buddy, what's going on here anyway? <laughs> what's a mambo? It's a mambo. But because this is 1953, people are less persnickety about wrapping their mouths around the proper or at least approximately proper pronunciation of foreign words. And so some people were calling it the mambo, including Joe Besser. My last clip today will be one from Phil Silver's wonderful Broadway musical Top Banana, which was practically filmed on stage. And the cast album of it is a joy forever. And at one point, he goes into an Ed Wynn imitation, and he says this. Hey, you know something? Television is a wonderful invention, you know. You can reach millions of people, but they can't reach you. Try to destroy Television is a wonderful invention, you know. You can reach a million people, but they can't reach you. <laughs> That's what he says. But you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. And thank you, Mike Volo, especially for dealing with all of these silly clips this week. And I remain yours, John McWhorter. See you next time. Wait a minute. Everybody wants to get in the act. I'm thinking all in Some of you may remember the episode where I had a clip of my daughter and me reading where it was clear that my daughter can read and she can. But there is a problem. She doesn't really want to. And the reason is because she is the first generation raised with these screens. God bless the iPad and the iPhone in many ways, including for her. But it's more attractive than the page. I suspect that I would not have read early if there had been such things. Well, now there's something called Pinna. 
Penna is safe as an ad free and it's guilt free audio entertainment. It's an app just for kids. You've got original stories. You've got children's podcasts because most kids aren't going to enjoy Lexicon Valley. You've got all you can listen audiobooks and all of it is in one app that they can put their little peanut butter fingers on. They can hit the button and have something to do that's different from staring at the screen with my little effing pony, etc. It engages their imagination. Try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen and you can start your free trial. Not tomorrow, not next week. Start it right now. You'll be glad you did.